The ACC could be getting Stanford, Cal, and SMU. Messi is coming to New York, and later on we speak to a tennis legend about the U.S. Open. It's Friday, August 25th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. The ACC could be picking up two of the remaining four Pac-12 schools, plus SMU. Joining me now to discuss is FOS reporter Amanda Kristovich. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, how's it going? Good to have you back. So, yeah, give us the scoop here. Is this going to happen? Yeah, it's it's a little unclear right now. Um, I was told uh, by an industry source that whatever the ACC decides to do, um, hopefully the decision, everyone wants the decision to be finalized by... Um, week one. So not this Friday, but next Friday, because this is week zero um, of college football season. So, you know, I've crunched the numbers and from a financial standpoint, it doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense for the ACC to add these three schools um, in the short term, but in the long term, it it might help um, in like the round of negotiations 13 years from now for the ACC's next media deal. Um, but you know, all the reports suggest that four schools, including, um, Florida state are holding out and not voting to add these schools, mostly theoretically because of finance. Um, you know, but we're really not sure if, only one of them needs to change their mind. So we're really not sure if they're going to hold out or if there's going to be some sort of deal struck with revenue distribution that will make them happy enough to add these three schools. Yeah. And the reports I've seen, it seems like all three schools are willing to give what looks like a pretty sweetheart deal in terms of not taking in either full revenue or maybe even any revenue for something like seven years to kind of bridge that gap. So it would probably make financial sense or make more financial sense for the schools already in the ACC. Feels like a deal is going to get done if that's the case. Yeah, honestly, though, like even then, um, if you were to split if the ACC was to split the media distributions that would have gone to those schools amongst, um, would have gone to the new schools amongst its current members, right? If they, if um, SMU and Stanford, for example, agreed to relinquish their media, uh, their share of media revenue, split 14 ways really is only, you know, a few extra million per school. It really doesn't move the needle at all, particularly when you have to think about the increased travel expenses of sending East Coast schools that are, normally don't have to leave the East Coast all the way to the West Coast. So, um, you know, the way to fix that might be that that extra pot of money would be um, distributed based on like performance, which is something that the ACC has been looking into in some cases has already somewhat implemented. Um, but again, it's really not going to be a huge boon for these four schools that are, you know, very upset about um, what they're making in the ACC right now. And they're, they're not happy. Yeah. I mean, for the travel thing, if only there was a conference that just had the West Coast schools all together and, you know, they could just play each other that, you know, that could make some sense. Um, and how much of a, 
of a problem is it that yeah we've got 13 years right left on the uh, on the ACC's media deal and so it's not like they can just roll in in three years and say hey now we've got Stanford and Cal like that's gonna you now CBS or whoever you know why don't you give us another billion dollars or I, I mean obviously I'm just throwing out random numbers and networks but uh, but yeah does that time frame kind of mess with it here too. Yeah, I mean, it works for and against the conference. It works against the conference, like you said, in that multiple other conferences are going to be able to renegotiate even their upcoming media deals again before the ACC. Um, But it also has provided some stability um, for the conference, you know, so at least it wasn't in the position the Pac-12 was in. Um, And also, you know, ESPN is a great distributor of college sports, so um, you know, the visibility is there, even if the money may not be. Um, but you know, they will be getting, there will be an amendment to this media deal. If the ACC brings in new schools, the report suggests that, um, you know, so if each school right now is making $30 million from the media deal, then the ESPN will add enough um, money to the media deal so that there will be like the new schools will also theoretically be able to bring in that distribution, of course, unless they relinquish it. So there will be some amendment, but it's, it's really not going to be a huge overall increase for everybody. And last question, scale of one to 10, where one is no, they're still totally alive and it's going to keep being a thing. And 10 is they're completely done. How done is the PAC 12? Mm, I would say about an eight, you know, like the idea of the Pac-12 is 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 very close to being dead. Uh, Washington State, one of the four remaining schools, um, you know, is looking at three scenarios. Right, one is joining the Mountain West, one is joining the AAC, and one is trying to rebuild the Pac-12. You know, and presidents have talked about that would be something that they're interested in, but. I think that would be very difficult to do given the other opportunities on the table. And, you know, the way I see the PAC 12 surviving is if there is a merger with the mountain West and then the mountain West takes the name of the PAC 12 and Gloria Navarez becomes the new PAC 12 commissioner. But even then, of course it would be a completely new PAC 12. So like the PAC 12, as we know it is dead in my opinion. Yeah. Amanda Christovich, great insights as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Up next, Lionel Messi is set to make his MLS debut in New York on Saturday against the Red Bulls, and the team and the city are maxing out on Messi mania. My colleague David Rumsey spoke to Red Bulls president Marc de Grandpre on Thursday, and that conversation is next. All right, we are here with Marc de Grandpre, president of NGM of the New York Red Bulls, who has a very special visitor coming to Red Bull Arena this weekend. Lionel Messi has already won a trophy with Inter Miami and just advanced to the final of the U.S. Open Cup. But on Saturday, he'll actually play in his first regular season MLS game. Mark, what have you been doing to get ready for this special occasion? Ever since it was announced, David, that he was coming, uh, we've been getting prepared for to, to deliver a great event, obviously for our fans, uh, for the local community. We've specially packaged the game. So it not only impacts August 26th for us, but it drives more uh revenue for future matches ultimately so uh we did that we're doing a great pre-game activation we're celebrating hip-hop uh 50th anniversary also so we're gonna have some pretty notable djs from new jersey we have some folks from naughty by nature coming out dmc from run dmc are going to play a set before the game starts and then post game uh 
they'll play another set and then we'll have fireworks. So it's going to be a really good night. The demand from the media has been amazing. Usually, David, normally we have 70 requests for media. We have about 450 plus requests for this game. So, uh, and I think coming off the heels of the game he just played last night in Cincinnati, the energy will be more pent up and people, people will try to get in. If they can't get in, David, what we did, we worked with a partner in the city in Times Square. So we've got a, the biggest digital video board in New York City that's between 45th and 46th Street, whole city block on Broadway. We'll be broadcasting the match there also. So folks in, in the city who can't have access, who can't come to the stadium, will be able to go watch live here with a lot of the, hopefully a good crowd in New York City and Times Square as well. So it should be a fun night for everyone. And can you quantify at all how successful you expect this match to be from a revenue standpoint, at least compared to uh, your standard um, home game? It's it's two to three times more in gross gate. It's our largest ever MLS gate since we've been at Red Bull Arena. So we've been writing constantly about the business of Messi. And as we're talking about now, everybody is winning seemingly uh, on the business side of things. But there's also the competitive side of things, which could kind of translate to long-term business for MLS. Messi himself said he thinks MLS has a really great chance to grow. But you know, as we've kind of seen, Inter-Miami hasn't lost since he's stepped on the field um, how do you feel about the competitive nature of this? Obviously, you want to make some money off of him coming this weekend, but I'm sure you want to win too, be that first team to beat him. How do you balance that long term with, you know, you like him being in the league, but also, you know, are they too good already? It's a great question and interesting point of view. I'd say if you look at all the, even last night, that game went down to the wire, right? Uh, last minute, Messi serves up a perfect ball. To, to tie the match. Uh, the Nashville game could have gone either way. It, he's been in competitive matches. I think that's going to continue to prove out uh, as the MLS season uh, unfolds here. I would say that our objective clearly is to win and be the first ones to beat him. And I love that we have that opportunity Saturday. And I think the guys will be ready. Um, I also believe that it pushes everyone across the league to elevate their standard now. We have to make sure that we keep developing our product on the pitch, make it more competitive, not only within the Americas, but globally. And we have the global platform to do that with Apple TV now, a great partner we have that's done a phenomenal job in their first year uh, with our partnership here. We have the eyeballs around the globe looking at us. We have to make sure that we continue to invest in the product and elevate the, the level of play on the pitch just so we can become one of the top five leagues in the world, which is where we want to be. Right. And that's kind of something MLS commissioner Don Garber was speaking to uh, a few days ago, saying it's kind of on the other teams to capitalize on Messi. And I guess not just, you know, Messi coming to town like this weekend, but the opportunity of him being in the league. How else can you uh, continue to elevate MLS and, you know, whether it's looking for stars like Messi to come to your team or any other ways? Yeah, for us, we have a very specific you know, strategy in terms of developing our team. As everyone knows, we like to go after young players, develop them. And our homegrown system is very important, right? Our academy. Um, so we want to make sure that we continue to sign our top stars in our academy, provide them a pathway to our first team, and then to, for them to go uh, become the best versions of themselves uh, in our team or elsewhere. And now we need to elevate our game and really do uh, a much better job at attracting young talent to our team, invest more in the roster, which we're committing to for 2024 and beyond, uh, 
and we all want to be competing at the top of the league, right? And it's something that every team across the league will see what's going on with Inter Miami within their own models. I'll sure everyone's going to start investing a little bit more to make sure we can elevate the standards across the board. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Thank you, David and Mark. And listeners, if you happen to be in Times Square for the messy game, send us pictures to FOS underscore today on Twitter. Should be a crazy scene. The U.S. Open starts on Monday, and I got to speak to Chris Evert, who is tied for eighth overall and fifth among women with 18 singles Grand Slam titles, and now serves as an analyst for ESPN. We talked about the players and storylines she's tracking and the state of U.S. tennis. That conversation is coming up next. I am joined now by tennis legend and ESPN analyst, Chris Evert. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Owen. How are you doing? Great. Great to have you. So uh, what's it like to return to the U.S. Open where you had so much success? I never get tired of it um, because every year it's a different year. Every year there are new players, new faces, new stories, new rivalries, um, new drama. <laughs> you know, it's there's always just... It's just very exciting, and I think New York City fans especially support American players, which I love. You know, they always supported me, and when I see Coco Golf walk on the court or Jessica Pagula, you know, you just you I, I can feel that love of them from the fans. So it's, you know, it's our country's major Grand Slam tournament, and that's why I love going and yeah, on, on the drama topic, uh, where are you seeing the big kind of juicy narratives going into this one? Juicy. Um, well, if you saw the match in Cincinnati against uh, Djokovic and Alcaraz, you can see that um, they're forming a, a, a quite a rivalry. And there's always drama there um, because their personalities are so different and their game styles are so different and they're like polar opposites, um, temperament wise. And it's like the old guard and holding back the new guard, you know, it's, it's the, it's the younger generation trying to, trying to really, um, out, out the, the older generation. Um, but you know, Novak's not going to let it go, you know, cause he's a champion. He wants to be, the, he is the greatest of all time and he's, he wants to be known as the greatest of all time. And also I think on the women's side, uh, Coco Golf, you know, the, the young American only 19 years old. And, you know, we've seen the last four years we've seen and talked about her so much about, she's going to win a major one day. She's so good. She's so young. She's so, she's so smart and athletic and, um, and I think that after beating Iga Spiontek last week in Cincinnati, she's proving to us that, you know, this may very well um, come true. And wouldn't it be ideal if it came true at the U.S. Open, her country's championship? Yeah. And she's one of those those athletes that I always forget how young she is because I feel like I've been hearing her name for a few years now. And so, yeah, how could she possibly just be 19? Um, in your um, your role as a TV analyst, uh, you have obviously a wealth of experience to draw from, um, but tennis is also, you know, getting more and more teched up. There's, you know, more, um, more ways to analyze the game. Do you find that there's good harmony between how you see the game and, you know, what an AI system might be telling you? I see that um, AI is a great tool to have alongside the human element. And, by that, I mean AI will have 
all the, they really are researching deeper and deeper into stats and to stories and to, um, you know, each player's strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, that is, that is wonderful information to have, but you have to have also the human element, which is the nerves, you know, who's going to get tight, who's going to choke, who, who's maybe starting to feel a little tired, fatigued, maybe not in the, in the greatest shape, who's getting cramps. I mean, all that's the, the human element. And I think, so I think you have those two things combined and that, I think that makes the commentary much juicier and more informative and, and I think more personal as well. I think that the, the, the fans, they, the fans really, they want to have an experience, you know, whether they're not at the tournament or they're at the tournament. If you're playing today, do you think your approach would be any different? I think I would have a lot more information on my opponents. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I mean, in our day, I mean, look, in our day, you know, we would send our coaches out to watch our, our next opponent and they would go out with, you know, a pad and paper, a, a pad and a pen and write down, you know, she makes errors off her backhand side. And, you know, they, it was pretty primitive you know, the facts and the stats that we got back in those days, we didn't get anything like this technology wise. So um, now it's like, you know, Sabalenka will go 80% wide on the forehand side when she serves. I mean, it's so technical. It's so technical. And, you know, where their strengths, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a book out on every single player because, of this technology. And, um, so, you know, so I think that I would have had more information. Um, but as you know, and even as a commentator, I think it, I think it makes everybody, every commentator now has so much at their fingertips, so much information. So we have to decipher which, you know, we can't just, you know, just pile it on everybody, but because it, you know, you need the personal aspect as well the personal opinions and, and as I said before, the human element, but it, it really makes the commentating um, a lot more interesting, I think, for the fans as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, switching gears a little bit, this is the 50th anniversary of Billie Jean King successfully advocating for equal pay at the U.S. Open. What does that legacy mean to you? Wow. Well, you know, I, I was a teenager back in those days and I, I didn't, I, I wasn't quite in the middle of that movement as I was, I was still in high school and I didn't quite understand um, the significance of, of what Billie Jean and the original nine were doing and what they were trying to do for women. It, it was a little too advanced for me, but um, I learned later, you know, in the next few years, Billie Jean and the women would really guided me and, and um, you know, explained everything to me. So I kind of understood, Oh, you mean men and women can be equal <laughs> you know, and women don't have to be, you know, homemakers and moms and they can go out and work. And, you know, this is, this is, this was a, a new generation and a new, a new culture. And I, I give Billie Jean and the original nine all the credit in the world for just, um, for what they did for women and providing, opportunities for not only in tennis, but in every sport. And I think it carried over to business and just that, that, that ability to, um, you know, really get a lot of attention on 
on the issue of men and women and, and, you know, the inequities that we were facing back in those days were horrible. And now it's, it's, um, we're, we're working together, which I like it. You know, the thing with Billie Jean, the great thing about her is she championed men too. It wasn't that she just championed women. She just wanted them to work, men and women to work together side by side with the same opportunities. And that is exactly what is, what has happened because of her. She's a, she's a great pioneer and a great leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, jumping back to today's times, tennis players, you know, they don't have a union. Uh, they mostly have to fend for themselves when it comes to earning money, accessing insurance, finding time and space to train. Actually, we do have unions. WTA um, is a union and we get insurance from the WTA and, and they take care of us that, you know, and the ATP for the men. Okay. All right. So I stand corrected on that. Um, <laughs> so there, there is a movement but too. It's an, it's an individual sport though, in that right. sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, there isn't, to my knowledge, there isn't any real collective bargaining um, happening right now. I'm just wondering if, if you think there are any particular steps that you would like to see to um, improve conditions for players or just help grow the sport. The, the WTA was more of a union, I think, in the early years, 70s and 80s, um, when Billie Jean was the head, of, you know, was guiding the game. And, and we always had a CEO, but the CEO would always come to the players and say, what do you want? And I think that um, it's changed over the years because there's more money in tennis and more. It's bigger business. Um, the women, you know, again, tennis players are making millions and millions of dollars and they have a little more of the power. Um, so you're right in that aspect. And I think that it would be nice for the women it would be nice for the players to be more involved and like um, there are player boards, which you can voice your opinion and you can really discuss issues that come up, you know, whether to play in China, whether to go back and play in China. What, what do we do about Saudi Arabia? If they're interested in us. What do we do about that? What do we, you know, there's, but I think that those are so, such personal, personal issues that I think the players very much should be involved in the decision-making of all of those issues and, um, and I think to a certain point they are, but I think that can improve. So there, much has been made of the, at least on the men's side, the lack of an American Grand Slam winner in a long time. At the same time, there are top players, both men and women, that are, you know, for, from the States playing right now. Do you think we need an American Grand Slam winner for U.S. tennis to reach the next level? I think it always helps U.S. tennis interest if there's an American player being number one. I mean, it was that way when Billie Jean was number one, when I was number one, when Serena was number one. Um, I'm sure I'm missing. Uh, Venus was number one. I think that um, I think that the public, the American public, can re relate a little bit better and have somebody to, to get behind and really cheer for. So I think that would definitely help uh, the women. I feel, I don't know, I think Coco Golf has a really great um, chance to be number one very soon. And, you know, Jessica Pagula is doing great on the men's side, even though we don't have um, some uh, an American player, although Taylor, Taylor Fritz and Tiafo, I mean, you look at those two, they're doing really well. 
and we have more in the top 10 than we've ever had in a long time. And we have more in the top hundred than we've had in a long time. So it tennis, I mean, the tennis is improving that way, but yes, I think that it does help Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe. That's when the tennis boom was in America when we had a number one American player. So it, I would, as an American, I would like to see that happen soon. Mm-hmm. All right, Chris Everett, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Owen. That is it for today. I'm still reeling from Shohei Otani's UCL tear heard around the world. Could not have come at a worse time. And here's hoping the best baseball player in history can make a speedy recovery. Enjoy the weekend. We have college football week zero, Messi in New York, more NFL preseason and MLB action. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.